the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNW presents... New Focus on Wealth with certified financial planner Chad Burton, drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome in, Rob Black, and your money focusing on wealth. There's a lot of ways to get wealthy. You could inherit it. You can invest your pennies and dimes that become nickels and quarters and dollars. There's ways of earning more money through a good education and a good job. Marrying correctly versus incorrectly. Marrying incorrectly could be very costly. You get the idea. And again, the word wealth means a lot of things to a lot of people. I'm not trying to get in your head with that one. One way to get wealthy is to work with smart people. I'm fortunate enough to work with CFP Chad Burton at EP Wealth. We've had a long career working side by side. We're kind of cool gunslingers. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton. Mr. Burton, how are you? Doing well, Mr. Black. How are you? Doing well. We talk a lot about wealth and creating wealth. One of the things that um, I, I bring to this topic is being a little bit more robotic. Um, I'll buy on the next pullback is probably the most famous phrase I always hear from people. They don't want to buy at a 52-week high. They want to buy low. They want to sell high. Um, And yet Fidelity Magellan, the most successful mutual fund of all time, has kind of shown us more people lost money in it than made money because they bought high and sold low. What do you think is about the countless number of people out there who psychologically wait for a bottom or wait for a sign or wait for Chad to whisper in their ear a sweet nothing. <laughs> well, I think it's becoming more of an issue now before. And I think going first to that, that Fidelity Magellan example, yeah. I, I think it's most investors, they don't lose money. They just earn a heck of a lot less than what the average annual return would have been if they would have just stayed put um, because they try to kind of go in and out of it. And I think it's getting worse these days because there's so much financial media. And then when we've, gotten into speculation bubbles on different areas of the market. You see it pushed on social media by other people that are trying to get you into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when the market hits highs or lows, media goes crazy. But I just want to point out 70% of the time, the market's at all times high at all time highs because 70% of the time the market's positive and 30% of the time the market's negative. If you look at like a hundred year period, those are amazing um, and, odds, Chad. Like the odds of you losing your luggage are way less. The odds of you eating at McDonald's are way less. The odds of you winning at Wall Street are great. The odds of you winning the lottery, awful. And yet people still see it as a little bit of a roller coaster. 
Yeah. I mean, I like that idea. If you do see those pullbacks, I mean, the big correction and early 2020, that was a huge buying opportunity for the next decade for people, right? Yep. And if if you would have stayed put, maybe done some tax loss harvesting and rebalancing your portfolio, you were well paid. Um, and if you had cash on the sidelines that you're trying to put to work, do it. But just start, you know, stay invested. And, and that doesn't mean you don't look at stuff and review what you own. Mm-hmm. It just means don't try to guess all in and all out. I've, I've met people that have done it, got out at the right time, but then they never get back in at the right time. And so the stock market drops, they lose out on all those dividends and interest that the bonds and stocks are paying. And then by the time they start to go back in, the market's already recovered to where they were. And so they get, they miss, they, they actually get back in at a higher level and they've missed a year or two of dividends and interest. And that can be devastating to your long-term performance. So for the average investor out there, would you say buy and hold makes more sense? Or would you say load up on growth and give it a little bit more time? Is there a mathematical formula in your head that works on this concept of waiting for a drop, having cash on the sidelines? I guess I'm looking for a little more Exposition. Systematic investing, Systematic. index funds for the first 250 grand, you're, you're going to be just fine. And if you look at things like total stock market indexes here and then overseas, um, so younger people, you know, minimum of 80% here, 20% overseas, sometimes more overseas. And just, you know, stick with the indexes for that first 250, you're, you're going to be well served and you just systematic contributions, whether you pick, um, I think it's easier now to set up a, a portfolio at you know Schwab, for example, and just average in and have ETFs automatically purchased and make sure that when you buy it, dividends are being reinvested. Um, or use apps like you and I have used before, Acorn, that you can kind of set up a systematic purchase into a very simple ETF portfolio that rounds up your credit card purchases. Just continually invest. How about you know, the greatest systematic way of investing known to man, the 401k or the 403b? I've read a couple articles here and there that people don't necessarily like them. I tend to say I think 401ks, 403bs make more millionaires than anything else I've ever seen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, typically the people that write articles about not liking the 401k or 403b, they're typically trying to sell you uh, life insurance as an investment. Okay. And they're saying, oh, don't bother putting money in your 401k. That'll be tax again later on. So let's put it in this really great life insurance policy because you can pull money out tax-free in life insurance. Well, okay, they don't tell you about the huge commissions they make. Mm. They don't tell you about the huge hidden fees that are in those things. And it's a total joke. I mean, the, the, the easiest way to get a huge return on your money is put money in the 401k to get a match. Yep. It's a 100% return for the first 3% in most 401k plans. You tell me what's going to beat that. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So yeah, they're typically either selling some sort of a life insurance policy as an investment deal, which is horrible for 99% of the population, or they're selling some sort of a, you know, real estate marketing thing where it's like, you know, here's, you get into this real estate and then you find other people's money to get into this real estate and you're leveraging your life to the hilt. And no, it's, it's, it's like, with with all this frenzy on speculation of people wanting to trade on Robinhood and, and crypto and everything else, they people that are doing that, a lot of those people still haven't even put enough money into their 401k to get the match. They've missed out on building the base of their portfolio and they've gone right into the world of speculation. 
One of the saddest things that I saw given a speech at Visa was HR told me about 80% of millennials in their 401k put money into cash. They don't put it into mm. the S&P 500 funds. They don't put it in the index funds. They don't put it into the lifelong funds, the life cycle funds. Any thoughts on, um, I guess you could do it right by doing the systematic, but I guess you'd also still do it wrong by doing cash. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, cash can be, especially when inflation is ramping up, cash is going to lose money. The rate of inflation minus the interest on the cash, which is what, 0.5% these days at the most? Historically, so, isn't inflation 2 to 4%, sometimes a little lower, sometimes a little higher. So you got to get better than 2%. Yeah. And cash isn't paying that. That's actually the most difficult part of retirement planning right now is that, um, you know, in the past, when you have a, a pretty decent level of cash to make it through market corrections, you used to earn, you know, two to 4% on that cash. And now it's 0.5 because we went through a decade of really low inflation. Now we're seeing signs of higher inflation, but you know, who long, who knows how long it's going to last because, you know, hopefully the sl- supply chain will get corrected and they'll ease itself out. But yeah, put, putting money in just cash, you're losing money at the rate of inflation minus what the cash is earning. So well, thanks for being with mistake. me, Chad. I want to end on the quote of Richard Feynman's greatest quote ever. You must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. It's CFP Chad Burton. You can find him at EP Wealth. Easily on his website, chadburton.com. That's chadburton.com. Don't forget that he also has a podcast, New Focus on Wealth, available at iTunes, Spotify, anywhere where you might find a podcast. That's CFP Chad Burton. Find him at chadburton.com. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Find me online at robblackshow.com. Have questions? Drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. Have thoughts, feedback, ideas? That's a good place for it. Stock questions? Call the show. I don't play the lottery. I just don't see the odds in it, but I do like the number $1 million. It's Reagan CFP Chad Burton. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton, to talk about, from EP Wealth, Certified Financial Planner, to talk about what $1 million is and is not. Because growing up, Chad, that was a big number to you and me. Is it still a big number to you? It's a much lower number when it comes to actually what it can produce in retirement these days. Now, when you say produce, what does that mean? Well, you have to have a specific draw rate that puts you in a safety zone, right? And so, what? So, all this, uh, oh, if you back in the 90s, so I I remember this clearly because I got in the business about 93, and there was a prize that was won, um, and it was for the idea of how you could draw on your portfolio and maintain a safe level of draw at age 65. Okay. So what was determined is that if you start off with a portfolio and age 65, you pull 4% out a year and you can adjust it up slightly every year with inflation, you should have enough money to last till your age 100 if you maintain a balanced portfolio. Okay. And, um, but I mean, guess what interest rates were back then? I mean, I remember in the, in the mid to late nineties, we were locking in money at, 6% 6% guaranteed for 10 years. I think that's something. Fixed annuities back then when, when annuities were actually attractive. <laughs> and, uh, and you could get much more than that in corporate bonds. And the 10 year treasury was, you know, north of 5%. So that was all of that rule of thumb was created when interest rates were a lot higher. And when I think about stocks going forward, I still expect over 20, 30 year periods that stocks still average 10, 11% like they always have. Okay. But interest rates have come down for a lot of reasons. Um, lots of stimulation from 
federal from the governments around the world. Mm-hmm. There's currency issues. Um, there's a lot of debt in the United States, right? There's a lot of debt around the world. And so the United States government doesn't want interest rates to go too high because that creates more budget issues because those bond payments have to be made. So we're going to, even though interest rates will float up, it's, we're still going to take a long time to ever recover to where we were um, back when people were retiring in the 90s. So with that said, I think at age 65, a safer draw rate is more like three, three and a half percent on your portfolio. So if you had a million bucks, you better hope you can survive off 35 grand a year plus your social security. And is that, is that pre-tax? Enough? Is that 35 grand pre-tax? Or does it matter what state you live in? Or is there a way to like massage it better? So up to 85% of your social security can be taxable income. Okay. So if you have, there's a really silly formula. So if you take your modified adjusted gross income, which even includes your tax-free bonds plus one half of your social security, if that number is, you know, it it, it basically for most people to be able to afford to live in the Bay Area, it's going to be about 85% taxable income. So if you... Because it's really quick. It's like over 42,000. If that number exceeds 42,000 for a married couple, that's when you start getting hit with that 85% of your social security is taxable income. Now, it's probably only taxed at about 12%, but it's still taxable. And then all your other income sources are typically people's 401ks, which is still 100% taxable income. So while that couple is not going to spend a lot of money or in taxes, um, it's still a little shocking i think to a lot of people on how much that will produce you know because to you a lot that a million dollars was my goal when i was 18 and yeah. then i then i got the wife and i was like uh-oh it's gonna be two million and then i got the kids and i'm like <laughs> four million like my numbers changed is that fair to have a floating million dollar number in your head of what you need to to punch the ticket and call it a day yeah, for sure. I mean, life changes, right? When yeah. I was a lot younger, I loved tent capping and doing all that. And as I've gotten older, no, you know what? If I'm going to take time off work, I'm going to have a nice vacation. I'm going to stay somewhere <laughs> nice. I'm a little bougie as I've gotten older. So you don't want to make so love, just, sweet love in a sleeping bag anymore? It, it, no, tent, no. <laughs> so, I mean, I still like camping once in a while, but it's uh, it's not as much as I used to when I was younger. That's for sure. So it just depends on your lifestyle, right? You got to look at your overall expenses. And that's why I like to encourage people is if they get into a habit of as they get bonuses and raises when they're younger, and they think about, okay, I'm getting next raise, I'm going to, I need to up my savings. Rather than get used to a higher level of income and lifestyle, make sure you're upping your savings every time you get a raise so that you're staying on track. Okay, I got my, my million dollar joke for you. You ready? Mm-hmm. If I won a million dollars, I'd give a quarter of it to charity. Not exactly sure what I'd do with the other $999,999 and 75 cents. <laughs> I like it. That's good. And I've come to the conclusion <laughs> you and I shouldn't go camping because of my thoughts on sleeping bags and I can't quit you. <laughs> Don't even go there. I'm not going there. Any other Don't last thoughts about setting goals? I mean, is it good to say I want a million? Is it bad to say I want a million? Should we set ourselves up for disappointment? Should we set ourselves up for like glee once we hit it and then we can take the foot off the gas? I think it's a good idea to have that, that fixed number when you're a little bit younger, like in your 20s, 30s, 40s, even 50 or so. 
Um, but then you have to really do careful cash flow analysis. What does retirement really look like? Because five million bucks is a ton of money, but it really again depends on your expenses. Um, and I've also known people that say, okay, I'm going to retire when I hit a certain level, but they're like 50 years old when they hit it. They're like, okay, now what am I going to do? If I retire, I have no game plan. I've got no hobbies, nothing. I've been working all this time. So what's my lifestyle going to look like? Um, so a number's great. Just to always have a goal that you're like, okay, once I hit 2 million bucks, I'm going to go get a solid financial plan and cash flow analysis and figure out when I could truly retire. That might be a good goal, but... Other than that, uh, it's really all relative to your expenses and how you want to live in retirement. I'd agree with that. I remember when I was younger, my dad stressed over buying a $14,000 car. And then my first car was a $20,000 car. And now you could easily get a car started at 50, 60. You could easily get a couple packages and it's $100,000. So you do have to kind of change that million dollar number because one car is now could easily be a hundred thousand. Let's not even forget the cost of living and those inflationary numbers that are changing that million dollar big number into a much smaller number. Got yeah, about a minute. Yeah. Well, f- f- first of all, that's a nice car for your first car. You had a $20,000 first car back then? Yeah, it, it wasn't all that good. It was um, it was a Toyota Camry, but it was the cheap version. It was um, uh, like a Kia version of a Camry. Oh, gotcha. My first car was a Volkswagen Dasher station wagon, rusted outdoors and 650 bucks. <laughs> and I put $800 stereo in it. <laughs> Did you take the kids to Wally World in it? Well, I didn't have kids back then. I was in high school. So. And I should correct myself <laughs> and say my first car was a Chevette that was free, but my first car that I paid for was 20 Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, that makes more sense. Any last thoughts before I kick you off? Yeah, inflation is a big issue. So uh, value dollars cut in half every 18 years. So you have to have all of your expenses in retirement inflating. 2.25% normal expenses, 5% healthcare costs. Talking big issues about earning, investing, saving, get into retirement, enjoying your retirement, things along those lines, trying to avoid some of the pitfalls. I don't know if you remember the Activision game Pitfall. A classic. I think he played some character, Harry, who was kind of a ripoff of Indiana Jones, but now I totally digress. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton. One of the pitfalls of retirement in CFP Chad Burton, certified financial planner, EP Wealth. He and I have been together for 20, almost 25 years. It's crazy. Um, Chad, one of the pitfalls of retirement is is social security, in my opinion. It, it sounds too good to be true. I think we approach it as well, I always got Social Security, but I took a college course on Social Security in college, oddly enough, <laughs> and uh, it really opened my eyes, and that's probably one of the reasons I got into the financial world with you. It's, it's not what I thought it was. Let's talk Social Security. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, <clears throat> people can see it in their paycheck that they're paying into the system. It's called FICA. Yeah. And so it shocks you, us when we see it. I, I remember you on air telling me your kid was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Who's FICA? Who's taking my money? <laughs> <laughs> so it, when you're working for somebody, you split that cost. And, okay. but when you're on your own, you pay it all. So that's why people that when they go self-employed need to realize that, Oh, I've got an extra tax that I wasn't paying before and I got to pay my own benefits. So that's why when you're working as a self-employed person, you tend to have to make 20 to 30% more um, on revenue just to support your payments to social security and benefits. So it's very important. And that amount of money is taken out, um, of your paycheck up until the point when you make 142,000 or so. Okay. After that, 
you've maxed out. So you've maxed out on what goes into the social security system because there's a maximum payment at various ages. For example, if you take social security at 62, the most you can get is 2,324 a month. And that's assuming that for 35 years, you maxed out your income in terms of how much income you've always made over the social security wage base. This year, it's a little over 142. Five, 10 years ago, it was like 100. So you've always made a lot of money and you've maxed it out. That's the most you're going to get at 62. At most people's full retirement these days, the, that age is 67. It used to be 65. For most people, it's 67 now. That's a little over 3100 bucks. And at age 70, if you wait, the most you can get is 3895 Again, that's assuming you make the max you've always made over the Social Security wage base for 35 years. And there used to be all sorts of tricks and tips and things like that, Rob. But a lot of that went away. Back in was it 2016, they killed what's called the restricted application for most people now. And so spouse, spouses could play off one another's benefits. Now the biggest issue is, do you take it... Let's say you stop working early. Do you take yep. it at 62, your full retirement age, or age 70? Which, which one are you going to take it at? Is there a right answer? Well, yeah, it, it's based on a couple of things. The, the first one is longevity, okay. right? Because let's say you've maxed out and your choice is I've, I'm retiring at 62 and I'm going to get 2324 a month. Okay. But if I wait till 70, I'm going to get 3895 a month. That's a big difference. Huge difference. It, one, though, you get eight years extra worth of income. So there's that crossover point. There's the... How much income you make divided by, you know, the, you, you have to figure out what the difference is in the two payments. Yeah. So for example, it's, you're, you're going to get $223,000 more. So by taking it 62 to 70, that's 223 grand. That's a lot of money. But if you wait till 70, you're going to get a higher payment of almost $19,000 a year. So you can figure out the crossover point. How long do you have to live? And it's usually in your, you know, early to mid eighties before you break even by waiting to get the higher payment. And so for people that have a long of longevity issues, they're going to live into their 80s, 90s, potentially 100. They definitely want to wait. Um, but there's a couple of other issues. So let's say at 62, let's say all your money is in retirement accounts that have never been taxed. Okay, That's also an issue. You got to kind of think about that. Like, oh, okay. So if I, if I don't have that 2,324 a month, I've got to wait till I'm 70 to get that 30, almost 3,900 a month. Where am I pulling my income? If it's all pre-tax retirement accounts, mm, that's, that's a more difficult choice. You know what I mean? Because it's like, you don't have cash to live off of. You don't have Roth IRAs to live off of. You don't have other investments outside of your 401k. Then that's also a tougher choice. Um, the, <clears throat> it also depends on who you're married to, right? So if you have an age difference. Yes. Good point. And yeah, let's say you're, let's say you're, you're the husband. Yes. Health, health, health isn't great. You, you don't expect to live much past age 80, but you have a younger spouse. Yes. And they're healthy. Well, you might think, I'm not going to live very long. So I'm retiring at 62. I'm just going to start taking payments. The thing that you have to realize is that when a spouse dies, the surviving spouse keeps the bigger of the two checks. Okay. So a non working spouse can still get about half at full retirement age of the working spouse's social security. And then when the, uh, first spouse dies, the survivor keeps the larger check. So you might, even if your health is poor, you still might wait till you're 70 to protect your spouse if they're going to live a long time and they don't have much of a benefit on their own. 
you're a certified financial planner and you deal with high net worth people in theory, but you also have people that cross your path in life that are not high net worth people. Is social security going to be enough for the people who didn't get a nest egg together or a plan or retirement? Um, well, it's going to have to be okay. because that's the majority of Americans really are in that boat where most of their income and retirement is going to come from social security. My, my, not vast knowledge of social security is that it, it it keeps you maybe, maybe above poverty, but not by much. Most people that I know that live just on social security are in trailers and eating very poorly. It, it's, it's a supplement to a retirement plan. It's not a retirement plan. Is that a fair statement? And yet a lot of people think it's a retirement plan. Yeah, because the numbers that are given on the monthly amounts, that's for people that were making well over 100 grand a year for 35 years, right? So... The, most people's social security income is much lower than that. Yeah. And um, so, and you're seeing that a lot. You see people like focus on getting into their expensive Bay Area home and not saving money and driving nice cars and they get to their point of retirement this way. You're going to see more and more people exit the Bay Area that are older, that have not saved well, that instead chose to spend, you know, seven bucks on a coffee every day and, and buy a super nice car and have a mortgage that was way too much money. They weren't even putting much into their 401k. So they'll get to a point of age where they can't work anymore and they're going to have to downsize and move elsewhere. Let's talk about the thought out there that Social Security is going to run out of money. Um, where do you come down on this? It's not that it's going to run out of money. What happens is, is the, the way the math is working, especially after COVID, is that somewhere around 2034 or so, the Social Security system is going to be paying out more money and benefits than it's taking in from FICA out of our paychecks. Okay. And by law, benefits have to be cut if something changes. And whoever's going to be the politician at that point in time, it's, that's, that's going to be a real rough go. I don't so, see that happening. I don't see a politician going, you know what? We're cutting Social Security. I might as well resign my position right now. Exactly. That's why taxes are going up in the future. We okay. keep getting all this stimulus and we had this tax cut in 2017 um, that, you know, honestly, we didn't really need. It helped stimulate the economy a lot, make our assets go up. But what we needed is our government to become more fiscally responsible. Where is this money going that we're already paying in taxes? And then somebody to focus on these systems because it's Medicare, Medicaid. It's called Medi-Cal in California. That's the poverty, you know, uh, health program essentially and social security. So you're, you're going to see eventually the minimum age of social security is going to go up to at least 70. I think, um, we've seen the wage base on how much taxes you pay for social security go from 109 to 142 in the last several years. So we're paying way more taxes on our base for not much more, for not any more income. And then you're going to see a much bigger tax penalty on those that get Social Security that have high income and retirement. Up to 85% of your Social Security can be taxable now. I expect that to go up to 100 really soon. Wow. They're just going to have to shore up the system. That, that's all there is to it. So benefits will, I, I doubt they'll be cut, but there's going to be higher taxes to offset it and an older age in terms of when you can actually start collecting. Should the United States acquire Canada? <laughs> like I'm trying to figure out maybe the Sultan of Dubai, can we kidnap them, go after the Vatican? Steal I'll their take money. Canada. Canada is beautiful. I, I'm, 
I'm like wanting to go up there more, just less lines at the lift lines because you know, everything in California and Oregon is just ridiculous in terms of ski resorts. So maybe maybe Canada is better for that. I was going to tell you a joke about Social Security, Chad, but then it occurred to me you're probably not going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> you can use that one that's later. Good. I you. like that. I like that. It, it, that's that's actually a great point because typically when people are under 45 and we're doing their financial plans, their projections, cash flow projections, yep. we're assuming no social security. Like, let's be able to retire without it because if it's going to stay in place as is, yeah. it will be replaced with higher taxes for wealthier people. Now, like my kids would call that communism. Like, dad, you want me to pay FICA and into social security, but I'm never going to get it? That, that's going to be that's going to be a big political sea movement. It's at some a point. broken system at that point too, because if they continue to raise the Social Security wage base where we're paying in, but we don't get a higher benefit, that's yeah. ridiculous. And then when people have high income for Medicare Part B, Rob, most people pay about 150 bucks a month. But as soon as you start having higher income, you pay up to 400 plus a month for the same crappy coverage. It's called a Medicare surtax. It's called IRMA. I R M A A. So, and people don't realize that when they retire or, or sell a, you know, a lot of stock or property or something like that, they get hit with that Irma tax. I'm surprised you know what Irma is. That's, that's good knowledge. I wildly enjoy this job. It's kept me young in some levels of reading and studying and research. It's always changing. There's new technology. There's a lot to work on. But to be honest with you, I need other people. Joining me now, CFP, Chad Burton. Chad Burton, you're part of my financial team, so to speak. I work with one of the certified financial planners that you hired, Brad. Um, for our audience, what exactly, and for the record, uh, CFP Chad Burton, you can find his podcast at chadburton.com. It's new focus on wealth. He does a radio show on this station, but there's multiple ways of finding him. Chadburton.com is the best way to start. What exactly is a CFP and how does it differ from like a stockbroker or an insurance salesperson? Yeah, well, as long as a certified financial planner is fee only and we'll put in writing that they're a fiduciary, basically you get advice that's based in your best interest. That's what fiduciary means. And a CFP, to get that designation these days, you have to have a bachelor's degree and then go through the CFP coursework, which is taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning, investing, present a plan and then go through these. And there's a test on each course to get to the next one. And then there's a final exam that's a, uh, you know, over given, it takes two days to do it. It's got a national pass rate of 55%. So it's a real rite of passage, really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a certain amount of continuing education hours that you have to deal with. But it's, it's interesting because we all charge based on typically the portfolio amount that we manage for somebody. There are some hourly based CFPs that are really hard to find now. Not a lot in the Bay Area. Um, but most charge based on the assets that we manage, but that's a very small portion of what we actually do. The, the investing part is almost the easy part these days. Okay. So taxes, providing advice on insurance, with knowing you're not going to get sold a policy because when you combine insurance with investments, it's typically a horrible idea. Like those life insurance cash value policies, unless you're a really high income earner that's maxed out all the options, has a ton in stocks, doesn't want any more real estate. Okay, fine. That might be a bond alternative for you, the 1% of the population. When you get somebody that's plugging a bunch of money into a cash value life insurance at a young age versus a 401k or a Roth, it's 
stupid, 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 stupid idea. And the person that you went to to provide advice to you, they weren't providing advice. They were selling you something. That's what you can't have in your life. You don't want people to sell you stuff when it comes to financial planning. So areas, taxes, insurance, retirement planning, estate planning. We even look at educational funding. We look at insurance policies that you have on your homes and rental properties. Look at your estate plan, what you, the documents that you have, what you should change. Um, estate tax reduction strategies. We, we, with, with statements and a tax return, Rob, I can put together a puzzle for people. Okay. It's interesting that you bring this up because I want to throw out a couple quick things. Um, Brad, CFP Brad, and I know that's not going to get out of his last name or anything like that. But in one of our conversations, he makes sure to stop and address my wife and go, you understand what this means, right? Like he makes sure that I'm not swindling her or that she knows that she's up to speed. I love that part of a CFP. Um, but on top of it, there's things that I just don't know, Chad. Like, should I pay off a rental mortgage? Should I pay off a second home mortgage? Should I pay off the primary mortgage? And that's stuff that sometimes it's modules that CFPs have access to in computers. And sometimes it's it's just, you know, pulling out a calculator and doing it. The services are are pretty in-depth. And like, you get to know clients on a personal level, which I dig about you. You do pizza with your clients. You go to their homes. Um, it's It's different than what people would imagine. Typically, the Wall Street broker, greed is good kind of guy. Yeah, and it's it's yeah. The, the when I got into the business, there was tons of stockbrokers. It's basically if you wanted to go buy um, a stock, yeah. they would facilitate that transaction and charge typically a two percent commission to do so. And now that's free. You know that that world changed. I remember stockbrokers kind of panicking about companies like um, back then it was Ameritrade and and uh, Bidwell that was all of a sudden bringing upon $30 transaction costs. That was freaking them out. Then it became $9.95 and now it's free. <laughs> so those guys are all gone pretty much. Um, I saw and then, my first trade confirmation. It was over $460 in commissions. <laughs> I wish I would have kept mine. That, that, that's a great idea. Because they used to mail them to you and now mm-hmm. it's electronic, so it's different. But it's uh, I saved it. It was HBO Co., which was a healthcare company, which I wish I would have saved. Uh, which I wish I would have held on to because it would have done very well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But that's a totally different conversation. So who needs a CFP, Chad? And who doesn't need a CFP? I know you've got a good downloadable at your website, chadburton.com on when do you need a CFP? But give me some ideas here. Yeah, we're trying to wait to get that rebranded to the EP Wealth <laughs> logo. So I'm still waiting on that. But yeah, th- there's 15 things we do. I've done a whole show on what to do before you need a financial advisor. Um, so you've got to... You know, put enough money into the 401k to get the match, do a Roth IRA, have your emergency reserve set up, um, term life insurance uh, formulas, which is typically 10 times your, if you have kids, 10 times your net worth, okay. I'm sorry, 10 times your income plus your debt um, is a minimum amount that you'd want in a 15, 20 year policy. Um, if you're younger, maybe a 20, 30 year term policy. Uh, all these steps that you can take before you need to hire a financial advisor, because once you start running out of, okay, I've maxed out my 401k. I'm either doing a Roth or a backdoor Roth. And I'm accumulating these assets and I feel like I'm making mistakes or missing something now. How can I reduce taxes? What do I do with my estate plan? Do I have the right insurance? When you start to you know, run out of ideas in terms of ETFs that you can buy yeah. for your portfolio, 
and you have all these other questions like how do I truly fund education? Yep. What am I doing there? Is it a five twenty nine plan right, or will that screw up my kids' chance for financial aid? Um, am I on track for retirement? Should I even save for college yet? Because you know you can borrow money to get through college, but you can't borrow money to get through retirement. So you got to think about that. Uh, so when you start having questions that you just can't answer on your own, that's when you need help. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait. I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass. The will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiradopass.com. When I talk all things financial, oftentimes I get people who have strong opinions. Stocks versus bonds, bonds versus real estate. And then you can get into all sorts of other ideas like investing in baseball cards, Pokemon cards. Um, there's, there, there's a lot going on out there. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton to talk about the long-term fight. Who's right? Stocks versus bonds versus real estate. Because in the Bay Area, when I moved here, I found people loved real estate. And if I ever said anything slightly negative, like it's a liability, I'd get death threats, um, which is pretty insane. Chad, do you have an right. opinion? Stocks, bonds, real estate? Uh, the math is pretty simple, Rob. If the only way that real estate keeps up with or exceeds stocks over time is by a heck of a lot more risk and effort. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's pretty plain and simple because if people truly analyze their returns, if they had a property and every time they had to do something to maintain that property, every time they paid taxes, every time they had to fix something, um, you, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. It just reduces your actual return in the long run. I could interrupt you for a second. There was a great New York Times article probably about 10 years ago that compared real estate for 40 years to the stock market for 40 years. And it's basically said if you start with $10,000, $10,000 into a house in New York, San Francisco, LA, or Chicago, markets that have seen great appreciation or $10,000 in the stock market. And you just let them run for 40 years. The stock market beat real estate by four times. Mm-hmm. Yep. People won't believe that because of the leverage and other issues. And it's because it's a tangible asset, right? So you can say, oh, my mom and dad paid a hundred grand for this house. It's selling for 1.3 million, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well. Your dad must be ghetto. (laughs) (laughs) My dad's got a $2 million house on 10,000. But I'm kidding. Go ahead. Yeah, no, but they they think of that massive amount of appreciation. But how many times was that home remodeled? How many times did something break and the the water heater, whatever it may be, right? So to maintain it all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and while I'm, I still love real estate, I still own investment properties, mm-hmm. right? Because my plan, I don't, right now, I don't see bonds returning to a, a point where I can consider them as a huge amount of income, right? I still have a little bit of bonds in my portfolio. You know, I'm under 50, so I don't need a lot of bonds in my portfolio, but I have a little bit in my 401k for when markets correct. They tend to go up and then I can sell those and buy more stocks, just a part of rebalancing. Mm -hmm. And you need more of that as you get closer and closer to retirement. So you have something to either sell and live off of or sell and buy on the cheap when the market cracks. So they're still a very important part of a portfolio. Don't get me wrong. They're just not producing five to six percent income like they used to. It's more like two and a half to three and a half, maybe four on a long term bond, if that's somewhat safe. Do you think bonds will get their day again? 
when they're more like five, six percent? Yeah, I mean, it's going to take a while though, because okay. even though rates are too low right now and they need to go up a bit because we're starting to see the signs of inflation, there is so much freaking debt in this country that the, the government can't afford the rates to go backed up to where it were. They have to get this debt in control. control. That's sad. It's a problem. So because of currency issues, you can't let the dollar... If interest rates here go up too high, then all this money from overseas piles into the dollar. The dollar becomes too strong. And then the US doesn't want that because then people don't buy our goods and services, mostly our services, right? Because let's produce it. We're, we're a service-based economy. And so our economy can slow down. So there's this whole game of currencies and int- interest rates and things like that. So no, I don't see it going back up to where it was pre-Great Recession in 06 anytime soon. But I do see them going a little bit higher. My personal plan that, because I love what I do, but I just want to get to the point where I know the income from my real estate and the dividends from my stocks are enough for me to live off of. And I'm happy. That way I don't have to ever worry about selling anything. I just live off my dividends from my stocks, which tend to go up if you're buying dividend to cheaper stocks. Um, And real estate, which tends to go up because you're supposed to increase your rents every year to keep up with inflation. Let's talk about that because I think it's a big Bay Area problem. And it's a big problem for people who have real estate who are in love with real estate. They put a renter in and it's a million dollar home or a two million dollar home. It's a million dollar home and they're not getting two to three percent returns. Um, so if you're getting, I mean, if you're getting that much return on, on real estate after a giant price appreciation, that is a waste of money in my opinion. Would you sell? I would definitely look for under, yeah. I mean, if I, if I'm in the Bay area and I'm, I've got something that once I pay my, my, uh, taxes Uh and property manager and all that stuff, my net income is like two or 3%. I'm looking for a 1031 exchange opportunity outside of the Bay area somewhere else, but it's, it's expensive everywhere right now. Um, I was telling people to go into the Northwest, but you know, we could, you could easily get 6% plus for a while. Now it's, under four because prices have gone up so far. So someone's going to have to give somewhere, right? Either it's not like rents can go up because the people that are renting haven't had the price, the, the wage increases. Yeah. Um, but interest rates will go up and prices will get pushed down. I've, so, I've heard some more bad news for interest recently is that potential home buyers are saying they're giving up and they're saying, well, let's just rent. So the, the forever renters are now competing with the people who want it to buy and leave the renting area to create more supply for the renters. It, it's, it's frustrating, right? But at the mm-hmm. same time, you're looking for rate of returns that are realistic and can keep up with markets and keep up with inflation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the idea is the first thing you do is you okay, okay, if I, if I bought this thing for all cash, yeah. this home for all cash and just pretend you do that and it's easier math and you rent it out for a certain amount and then you set aside a certain amount, usually one or 2% for maintenance that will ebb and flow. You know, you might not have any maintenance for two or three years and all of a sudden you got to replace something major. Yep. And then you set aside some property manager fees because I'm not getting the call when the plumbing's down. I'm not doing the credit checks. I'm not doing the, the, the lease agreements and all that crap. Um, so, and then you set the insurance taxes, all that kind of stuff. If you can't have you know, 4% on an asset that requires a ton of risk. Because you can have a renter that squats. They, they don't do... They, all of a sudden, they go in there. I've seen homes where it took a year to get the person out that was not paying rent. So you have tons of risk. It's a, not a liquid investment. Stocks, you can push a button and sell immediately. That does not happen with real estate. Right now, it's a seller's market. So it's, it's much easier. But we've been in 
buyers markets before. We're down to our last like, minute. Any final thoughts? Stocks, bonds, real estate. Well, I, I love it, but if you can't pass that four percent rate, I would pass on the property. And really? we actually have software that analyzes people's rental portfolios because we get to a point in time where eventually you might have to sell to create more liquidity, and you better target which ones are the best ones to sell. Here's an honest admission. I've got a rental property in North Carolina that I don't want to run that software analysis of. It's available to me at EP Wealth. I don't want to run it because I think it's going to tell me that I should sell it. <laughs> Why don't you sell it then? It's kind of a shame thing. Mm. I kind of want to like hide it and like, eh, I've had it for 20 years. I'm smarter than everyone else. And But that's also the psychology of where you get messed up in financial planning. I think the software is better than the, the raw black emotion. Yep. You know what I see too? People fall in love with their renters and they, they kind of give them way too good of a deal for way too many years and then kind of cost them their, their returns. But if you can afford it, fine. Be charitable. If not, raise the rents. <laughs> I love it. Coming this summer to a theater near you, Slumlord Burton. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have got the greatest job. I know it kind of sucks that I have to get up early and I don't get to feed my kids breakfast, take them to school and things like that. But I want to say thank you because I think I have the greatest job and it's because of the listeners. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton, certified financial planner with EP Wealth. He and I have worked together for 25 years or so, roughly. Um, and it's continuing on strong. Quick question for you, Chad. Um, this is going to sound kind of odd, right? Alex Trebek, how long do you think he, he uh, was on Jeopardy? Oh my gosh, 20 years? 36 years. 36 years? Wow. Pat Sajak, how long do you think he's been on Wheel of Fortune? I think that's longer. 38 years. Do you know <laughs> the advice? I don't want my kids to grow up to be cowboys. I don't want my kids to grow up to be CEOs. I want my kids to grow up to be game show hosts. Because A, I don't have to send them to college, which is going to cost a lot of money, $250,000. And B, it seems like you could do that job forever and ever. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean... I, I don't know what's left. I don't watch any game shows anymore. Are they still going on? I don't know. What I'm trying to get at is a conversation with the one, the only certified financial planner, Chad Burton, about careers and cost of college and kids mm. and things that we don't really necessarily think about. The person who's made the most money ever on Jeopardy was Alex Trebek. He's, he's the biggest winner of all because of the income. Um, College cost. I, I once got into some heat on this show because I said, I wouldn't send my kid to college to be a poetry major. Um, and I had to go to management and get scolded for that. <laughs> <laughs> really? I stand I'm by that. You. I'll stand by I'm that. But uh, what do you think about college cost and, and future careers? And what, what advice would you be throwing down right now for uh, people? It's funny. We're talking about, I was talking about this with a buddy the other day, um, where... <laughs> <laughs> he unfortunately ended up uh, dating somebody that went to school a couple different times and is like on the third degree and this time it's for physical therapy. So the amount of debt that's being piled on okay. for a new degree on on something that typically offers less than six-figure income, okay. he, he might not marry this person because of the massive amount of educational debt that's not coinciding with the income that could be created because he just he doesn't want that stress. I know someone who... And I hope they're not listening to the show right now. Oh, I, got, I, I just got might a, have put I my foot in the mouth. I hope they're not listening to the show too. So I, oh, I know a family friend that the dad was super wealthy and mm -hmm. the kid kind of dropped out of college to start a butchering shop, a butcher in LA. Mm -hmm. That didn't work out, so he got into ice cream. That didn't work out, so he got into another thing. And it, eventually, his, his wife left him. 
because mm-hmm. it was it was yep. clear that he was never going to have a career and that he was kind of one of those forever dreamers and he spent his daddy's money ultimately for lack of a better phrase trying to figure out career but and again we have kids we want to push them in the right direction so i, I think that's the, the purpose of the segment yeah and it's the the first thing that you need to do is put your retirement first because like i said well said. i've said before it's easy to borrow money to get through your education and then find ways to pay it back you cannot borrow your way through retirement you okay. know what I mean? You, you just, you're either working longer or you're, you know, selling your home and living in a single room apartment or something like that at some point. You don't want to put yourself in that situation. And I get these calls all the times, especially from single moms that, that they start making some money and they're like, okay, and I want to save for my kids college. I'm like, first of all, that'd be the worst thing you can do because the, what you save outside of your retirement accounts or your home is eligible for the expected family contribution by saving money in your kid's name you can screw up their financial aid. So you've got, there's, and we actually have really great software at EP Wealth. We have a, a guy, Mike Ramirez, it's amazing at educational planning and finding, helping find scholarships, grants, loans, comparing different loan options and things like that. There's a lot of things you can do out there. Um, That's good news seeing that my kid's going into seventh grade soon. Yeah. I would, if, if Rob, if my kid wanted to go get a degree in poetry without a solid plan that I want to be a professor at a certain university or something like that, I'm not paying. <laughs> you go ahead and take your loans all, all you want for that one. You know what the I crazy not thing paying. about professors are is tenure. That's a system we need to end. Yeah. Where you get to stay in a job forever and ever if you get published 45 times. And the only people who are buying these publications are other tenured professors. And then you get to go <laughs> exactly. In, then you get to go in and shake up the world at the education at the school. And you're 80 years old and you're trying to fight for all of Tenure has to end. Tenure. And, and if, if your students know what your political affiliations are, unless you're in some sort of a poli sci class or something like that, that needs to end as well. Hmm. Why do you say that? Because you should be teaching, you shouldn't be. Oh, you, sh- you shouldn't be pushing your belief systems on kids. They need to figure that out themselves. That went right over my head. Mm. So I'm looking at a picture of uh, Vanna White right now. So she's been working for 38 years. <laughs> Still looking good. <laughs> she's either had a good surgeon or good genes. So I'm not- I, I bet her and Pat just wait for those times when somebody just says they look at a. a the, the missing letters and they say something completely vulgar instead of guessing the right word. It's just, there's all sorts of memes on, on uh, Jeopardy or not Jeopardy prices, right? Whatever it is the there's a great episode word, of buy family. your vowels. There's a great episode of family guy where the dad is on Jeopardy and the clue is in space G G E R. And he said the word you can't say. And the, the answer yep. was nagger. Someone who nags too much. Yeah, that's the show where the whole family was shunned. And, you know, <laughs> and it's, so, yeah. it's would you go on Wheel of Fortune? Would I? Yeah. Okay. So I'm more of a Price is Right guy kind of guy. I would. I'd, I'd do them. I think it'd be all fun. So I would not go on Let's Make a Deal because I'm not dressing up stupid. I'm sorry. I'm just not. I'm not going to do that one. Yeah, I don't get that show. So we got under a minute. Last thoughts on five twenty nine plans saving for college. Any anything that we need to know? Yeah, have your retirement on track first. first and then when you it. set a target for how much money you're going to save for your kid's college, 
Um, I used to say save about 85% in, you know, don't fully fund education with a 529 plan because let's say you get to college age and all of a sudden there's grants, loans and everything else. Um, I'm lowering that to 75% going forward because of some of the great software and capabilities and potential that there might be, you know, some loan forgiveness for colleges and things like that. So you need to set a target. You need to be aware of how much the college that you want your kid to go to costs and then set a target to only save maybe about 75% of that number. Huh. I kind of like the way you're working this into uh, financial modules and and the math of it all because, again, I'm not a financial planner and that's big picture kind of stuff. What do you think about the website Saving for College? Have you ever looked at it? It's it's run by bankrate.com and it kind of teaches people about 529 plans and various plans that are out there. Oh, savings, saving for college. I didn't even realize that they were owned by Bankrate as well. It's a great site. I mean, you can look at 529 plans and uh, that in collegeboard.com. That's where you can, can kind of get help with financial aid situations and getting educated on it and expected family contributions and um, things like, okay, if, if, if the grandparents are going to help, maybe that's best to help in the, in the last year versus the first year because of financial aid calculations. It's a whole realm of financial planning is uh, educational planning. College is a big expense. Quick question for you. Estate planning is part of financial planning. Like I think I've heard you say a couple times before, Chad, that financial planning, that picking stocks is probably the easiest part of financial planning. And I don't want to say the word easiest, but it's probably the, it it goes smooth or something like that is the right idea. Um, Estate planning, we don't want to die. And it's funny because my thoughts of how I would have planned my estate 10 years ago different than today. And I'm guessing in 10 years from now, it'd probably be different again. Um, so it, it seems like a fluid concept. What is estate planning and what do we need to know? Well, estate planning, it's two parts, two pieces. So if you're incapacitated while you're living, something bad happens and you can't function, okay, then you have to have the proper documents in place to have somebody step in and handle your affairs for you. So that's power of attorney, healthcare directive. Should I have that yet? Yeah. I mean, if you have, if you go to an attorney and you get a basic package you're in California, you're going to get a, a, a trust, okay. a will, a healthcare directive, power of attorney at a minimum. You'll have all those documents. And roughly 50 is the right age to be doing that or earlier? No. I mean, as soon as you have assets in California or kids, that's when you need to have a, a, a minimum of a will, right? Because the, the will, he says, okay, if something happens and I die, who's going to take care of my kids? And then if I have life insurance and other assets, who's going to take care of the money? It doesn't have to be the same person. But that's some of the hardest. That issue right there, the kids and the money, mm-hmm. that's what delays most people from going in and getting the documents done. Because they don't know. It's hard. I'll, like, I'll be well, honest I like you. my sister, but I don't like her husband. Or <laughs> I like my brother, but I don't like the wife. You know, <laughs> so It's all sorts of things go through people's heads. It's, it's interesting that you say that because that hits home. And I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners right now are going, that hits home for me too. Yeah. How do you get over that? Because I don't want to even do a state plan because I don't like going to attorneys. Yeah, I mean, it's the, that's the toughest thing is that if, you're, if you have young kids getting over who would take care of them, something change. You, you eventually got to get something down so you can get the documents in place. Yeah. But you can change it. So if you have a, a living trust... It's it's a revocable living trust, so you can amend it all the time. I mean, we're tend we tend to do amendments to these things every two years or so. Okay, whether it's either changing tax law or family dynamics change. 
right? So you do kids, kids become 18, kids graduate, kids get married. So all of a sudden, okay, this kid where we didn't know how they were going to handle money when they're younger. Now we know they're good with money. So we don't have to tie up the money as much. If I pass away, they can get it outright instead of having it tied up in a trust for years and years. So the documents are very amendable. You should be meeting with your attorney every couple of years. It's fascinating that you bring this up because it, it just brought back memories. And I'm sure this is going to happen for a lot of people. When I first got married and had kids, I wanted to like, where are the kids going to go if we die in a plane? Let's go to Mexico. Let's, let's keep our marriage happy, but let's get a, an estate plan going. And she wanted the kids to go to her sister. And I don't really like the brother-in-law. Like, it just... Loser. Again, hopefully they're not listening right now. Guy still doesn't have a job after eight years. How do you not have a job living in LA for eight years? I don't know. But um, I didn't want my kids going to hey, him. You heard of Uber Eats, bro? <laughs> he, it's a, beneath him. He won't. No, he won't. Doesn't sound like it to me. <laughs> I hear you. I hear. You. But I didn't want the kids going there. I wanted. We and we fought about it, and we didn't get a divorce, but we were. It was stressful. And then we both looked at our neighbor, and we go, "You've got two beautiful kids. Would you do it?" And it, it was in our community and it made more sense and it felt more right. Now, again, some people are going to hate that idea. Kids being raised by neighbors, but it could be kids being raised by your wolves church. Wolves <laughs> is a fine one too. Uh, were you raised by wolves? I was. Yes. What's, what's your weirdest story about parenting? they like, they did something totally wrong. Like mine is TV dinners. I think we had way too many TV dinners. We had way too many just crap, crap frozen food. <laughs> Uh, don't, don't get me started. Okay. My mom was married three times and I moved 14 times by the time I was 16. So <laughs> I, let, let's just say I've been buying my own school clothes since I was nine years old with a paper route. Good for you. <laughs> but my mom is amazing, by the way. It's just that we just never had money and she had bad luck with guys. I, I dated a girl who, and this is devolving very quickly, but her stepfather, so mom got divorced, remarried. The mom doted on him and like, she would be like, he gets two servings before anyone gets one. And people become bitter about that, that step parent and nuclear family kind of situation. How does that come into estate planning in your opinion? Because- oh, that's really important. Okay. And, um, you know, having been through it myself or a second marriage, the kids never, ever, ever liked the spouse. It just ruined the, the marriage, right? The family dynamics are huge. I mean, it's, it's a, Will this thing survive or not? It has to do with kids and everything else. But then let's say, okay, fine, you're empty nesters and then people get married later in life and then all of a sudden you have two people with kids from previous marriage and you love each other a lot, but you've built this wealth already mm-hmm. and people have to realize, okay, I'm, I'm married and it's the second marriage, third marriage, whatever it may be and I've got all these assets. So number one, was there a prenup? Hopefully there is, right? Number two, how do you protect your kids? Because what if you died? Everything goes to your current spouse, but then they get remarried. And that person has their own set of children. And all of a sudden, money that was supposed to be divided between your two or three kids is now being divided among nine to 12 kids. Wow. You know what I mean? So the estate planning is very important on those second, third marriages. I've got a real story. And again, hopefully they're not listening. Um, they're not clients or anything like that, so don't worry. But her name's Kelly. Um, she went to Yale, uh, Stanford kind of person, you know, uh, high education. Her and her brother were expecting to inherit a lot of money from their mom and dad. Last second, the dad gets divorced. Now she's like 45 years old, Kelly. 
Parents get divorced. Dad remarries a younger woman. Totally writes the kids out of the well. No estate coming. She's been goofing off for 20 years of her life. She's got a great education, but she's been goofing off, saved no money. And she went from living in the Los Gatos Hills to, to living in Phoenix with her mom. Uh, <laughs> it just blew up. Yeah. Yeah. So the kids thought they were on track for a lot of money. And the dad went with a younger wife. Everyone was written out. I think they got like a courtesy $100,000. Um, yeah, gee, thanks, right? But it was supposed to be like $40 million. I'll, I'll take $100,000 if anyone wants to leave it to me in their estate. <laughs> yeah, really. That's cur- that's a nice courtesy, but not when it's $40 million. But yeah, and there's such easy ways to do it. Like if you're in that situation, you're 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 remarried and you're more like, okay, well, I love this person. So if I happen to pass away early, I want to make sure that they're taken care of. They have enough income to support the lifestyle. Maybe they can even stay in this house until they die or want to sell it. But then it goes to my kids. Okay. There's there's specific types of trusts that you can use to do that. Would you do that? Would you get complicated with your trusts and set up like um, if I die, like for instance, let's use me and my wife. If she dies, um, we could have a trust that says it all goes to the kids. It doesn't go to the second wife or things like that. Would you put stipulations in? It, well, most trusts are like that. So okay. when you go through the process, you, you learn about these things. And so w- when you have a living trust, let's say it's you and your wife, you have a living trust. And typically, a minimum of three trusts are created for people that have a lot of assets. I didn't know that. When, when the first person dies, you have some money that goes into what's called a bypass or credit shelter trust to save estate taxes to, to shelter the credit of the first person that died. Because we all have a certain amount of money that we can leave to our heirs without any estate tax. And so that amount right now is $11 million. You can put up to $11.5 million into this thing. So you could put up put enough into that trust and, and the surviving spouse can take income from that to, to let live. But she can't change the beneficiaries, Rob. That would then go to your kids. And then there's also the marital trust, which is if there's anything left over that, that after the bypass is funded and you want to protect your half of your community property that would go into that same thing, your wife could have income from that, but then she can't change the beneficiaries. That's 100% going to go to your kids when you pass away. What do you think whoever about, you say. What do you think about this dilemma or am I being a jerk? I've got one kid who's really, really sweet and he's probably going to marry the first person that loves him. <laughs> and I'm worried that she's going to get divorced after a year, realizing that he doesn't know how to pick up his towels. And then she's going to get half of what I left him. How do I protect him from a bad marriage, which I've been in one. I was in a marriage that lasted under a legal year, which is the shortage marriage I, that I know of other than annulments by Nick Cage. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good comparison when you're comparing your marital life to Nick Cage. Oh boy. How do you protect kids from a, a bad spouse situation, which we all have had? Yep. So um, what I talk to clients that have a lot of assets is when they leave money to kids, it, it gets left into a trust. Okay. And the problem is, is I think most attorneys have this thing where, okay, it goes into a trust, but when the kid's 25, they get a quarter, then 30, they get another quarter of it, 35, another quarter. But so by 40, they're, everything's distributed into that person's name. And if they get married and they start commingling that with, mm. you know, homes and things like that that they bought, because as soon as you get married, the money that you earn, your W two wages and and earnings, forward growth on your retirement account contributions and things like that, that's that's community property. 
And so as long as you keep property separate that you have going into a marriage or have that you inherit, even while you're married, and you keep that very separate and you don't commingle it, that could be protected from divorce. Um, so what I like to have happen is that typically a trust, a professional trustee in place until the kid's like 40, 45, somewhere around in there. And then they can actually become their own trustee. And yeah, they lose a lot of liability if they're sued or whatever. But to me, that's a crock. I've never had a client in 26 years ever being sued for more than what their normal coverage is or umbrella. So I just don't buy that. My son once asked me, would you sell me for a million dollars? And I said, not in a million billion years. I love you. Followed up, would you sell me for two million? And I said, in this economy? Sorry, dude, you're out. Everything has a price. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton. Chad and I have a long history. Um, He's a certified financial planner. You can find him at chadburton.com. He does a podcast that's wonderful and filled with financial insights and nuggets, as well as some living well tips. And hence, Chad, earn money, save money, invest money. Which one of the three would you choose? Uh, If you could only choose one. If I could only choose one? Yes. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Um, Let's see. Save would probably be the last because I picture that just going into a savings account that earns hardly anything. I think more like coupons, saving money. That's still spending money. I hate that, but it's on sale. It's still spending money. (laughs) I'm with you. Everything's always on sale. Um, So investing is most important because you can earn more and more, but eventually you have to stop earning money. So you are going to wish you invested it. So I guess invest more money. Okay. You want to follow up on why you like investing? Uh, Compounded interest. Money doubles every 7.2 years. Um... Earn money while you're on vacation, sitting on a beach with a tropical drink in your hand. What do you like about investing? Uh, the thing I like about stocks, especially for people that don't, that like that term passive income or financial freedom, is that there's a whole group of stocks called dividend achiever stocks that have a history of increasing their dividend by an average of 10% a year. Not every year, but on average, mm-hmm. you know, they might go a year or two without one and then all of a sudden a 20% raise in their dividend. And the funds and ETFs that concentrate on that also look at things like free cash flow and debt ratios and, and realize that you can buy these companies even when you go through a bad economy like 08 and 09, you see those dividends increase. So you can actually have income go up during really rough parts of the economy. So a lot of stocks that fit that criteria, even in 08 and 09 when the market was down at one point nearly 50%, if you didn't need to sell anything, you were just living off the dividends, you actually had higher income. I like right. very few of those companies cut their dividend. When the cut, stock cuts their dividend, you usually want to exit that stock. Now, COVID was a little different because that was a shutdown, like a purposeful shutdown. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that was financially savvy to, okay, we're not going to pay a dividend because we're shutting down. We're, we're like, we're going to survive this the right way. Um, <clears throat> so it's going to be interesting to see how some funds deal with that. But that just love that passive income, that idea that I'm going to have dividends that tend to increase, real estate income that tends to increase. And I'll save enough. I'll invest enough until I know that, hey, these dividends and this income, this net income from my real estate, that's enough. I don't need to go to work anymore. Let me ask a little follow-up on the dividend achievers. When Bill and Melinda Gates announced their divorce, there was a headline that was pretty sensational. Melinda Gates now sipping off 200 million shares of Coca-Cola. And I kind of see 
Coca-Cola is a dividend achiever. Slowly but surely they grow. They increase their dividend a little bit here or there. I don't know if they are a dividend achiever. I'm just assuming for the sake of the story. But their dividend achievers tend to be great companies that we've known for 25 years because they have that track record of increasing their business. Do you like investing in great companies or do you like investing in kind of like the up and coming Pelotons or the next new thing, um, for lack of a better word? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, eventually those really great companies, you're going to buy those companies that have something new. Yep. <laughs> so you're going to end up with it anyway. Coke bought body armor. Uh, yeah. Or, perfect. I mean, you're, you're going to tend to have 30, 40% of your portfolio in those large, well-known companies, but you need to have, you know, 10, 15% for most people in the small cap space, which is where you find those innovators. Okay. Um, so you're going to end up with that anyway, if you have proper asset allocation, which is large cap, small cap, mid cap, international emerging markets. So the small and mid space and the international emerging markets, that's where you're going to find those innovators typically. With that said, I find that dividend achievers are easy. Um, you can go Google 25 dividend achievers, dividend achievers ETFs, and you can find list of companies that have that nice history of increasing their business. Nice, a little bit more capital, a little bit more share with these shareholders. Um, does that take a little of the mystery away for people? And that's why they don't tend to own these blue chip names. Does the index take away? No, no, it is the, the fact that it's almost boring. Like when I heard Melinda Gates owns Coca-Cola, I'm like boring. I thought she'd be owning some sort of artificial intelligence, cyber kinetic semiconductor chip that you could put in your head and control people. <laughs> we, you know, to go, what's, what's shocking to me about that is that I would figure that they're like, oh my gosh, soda is so bad for the population. It well, kills bad. so many people every year. Why would I invest in that? That's what I would have expected out of Bill and Melinda. I, just, I don't get that one. But anyway, um, where was I going with that? I can, I can take it a until I lost direction. track. <laughs> Here's a different direction on it. No one thought Bill and Melinda were going to get a divorce. Um, and divorce is a, a financial process. It's a word you've used earlier process. What do you think about how we approach financial planning and processes, whether it's saving for our kids, planning for, not planning for divorce, but executing a divorce financially intelligently? Um, is that part of the financial planning job that you like of helping people through these life, life events? Yep. I was just pulled into a divorce trial yesterday. Tell me, hours. Can, can you tell me, or is this not good for air? No, it's good for air. I mean, it, it's uh, it was a second marriage, prenup was in place, and so it, it was very uh, difficult tracking because a lot of things happened with different retirement accounts in yeah. terms of uh, company purchases and rollovers and investing in in uh, uh, private equity inside of it. So it was a lot of property tracing to match the prenup, and um, you know, one spouse didn't believe the other spouse in terms of what the values were, and they spent another twenty thousand dollars proving that the number was the number and it was all based on trust. So in terms of what I learned from that, because we always talk to people about second marriages and prenups is when you're going into a marriage with assets um, and how you can protect that, keep things separate. When it comes to retirement accounts and you want to lock that number in pre-marriage, it's like, okay, maybe I'll take what I already have in my 401k and put it into a brokerage link account. So if you have a fidelity uh, managed 401k or Schwab, they have brokerage link accounts you can hide that in there and have it managed and not, not, it's not hiding. It's just separating it from the other fund choices. So you can clearly know what was yours. Good stuff. It's CFP Chad Burton. You can hear conversations like this insights, 
much, much more with his podcast. You can find that at chadburton.com. It's New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. Lots of great downloadables at the website. Check it out. Do a little perusing. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.